Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 17. Good to have you in the house today. It's already been a good day, hasn't it? Yeah, it really has. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to pull another curtain back, or rather, we're going to let John do that for us. And much of what we see represents things that we've seen before. Like I said, a couple of weeks we've spent talking about this idea of recapitulation. You're building right up to the end, then you start back over and you tell the story in a different way. Well, this time what makes this occurrence different is the language is far more graphic and frankly far more offensive than we've ever seen before. And there's a method to John's madness here that we want to to get into because there's a lot of shock value in this text. And if you think about it, our culture has latched onto this as well. They understand that oftentimes if you want to communicate something that is, is necessary, you need some shock value. And so this is why we have graphic war movies like We Were Soldiers and Hacksaw Ridge. It's, 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 why, we, it's why we have these horrible kind of recount, recounting of, of historical moments we'd all rather forget embodied in movies like, like Schindler's List or Selma. Uh, it's why we, we have movies like The Cider House Rules, just kind of revealing all the moral ambiguity and complexity and, and all of the ways in which so many human problems are beyond simple solutions messages in movies that some of them are 20 plus years old, but you know them by name, don't you? And the reason you know them is because they were powerful and their messages were powerful and you remember that because the imagery shocked you. Well, that's what we're about to see this morning. Revelation 17 is shocking. It is designed to shock us into reality. And I'm reminded of an old adage here that we probably need to keep in mind. Not everything family friendly is Christian. Paw Patrol's all well and good for your little ones, but there ain't nothing Christian about it. There's nothing about Paw Patrol that anybody who's not a Christian couldn't watch. But conversely, not everything Christian is family friendly. It, way too many Christians try to be more holy than their God. And if you try that this morning, you're not going to be able to digest this message because it's shocking to the core. Shocking to the core. Because through this picture, Jesus is telling his church, you had better wake up to the spiritual forces that are at work around you. And the way he does that is by taking us to the spiritual red light district. Now, if you don't know what a red light district is, it's any area of any city that is known for prostitutes and houses of prostitution. That's what it is. The term, you may be interested to know, it came out of Holland. The Dutch have legalized prostitution, unfortunately, in their country, and that the presence of those kinds of establishments has historically always been signified by neon red lights. And so when I say spiritual red light district, that really is the vision. It is shocking. It is graphic. I honestly, even in the 21st century, 20 centuries after this written, there, some things have never changed. One thing that's never changed is nothing is quite as jarring or offensive as calling someone a whore. You agree? And that's what's happening. John is revealing to his readers 
how this entire world system needs to be understood. And so last week, just to set a little context for you, we saw these horrible bowls of, of wrath poured out on the world. Then we saw the world doubling down, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, blame shifting back onto their creator. God, this is your fault. And today, this vision we see explains the insanity. Because think about that, but that's kind of insane, right? If you get hit, and then you do it again, and then you get hit again, and you do it again. I mean, Pavlov's dog's got more sense than that, right? So, so when you think about this from a broad sense, you're like, why do people keep doing that? My, my younger brother, in fact, who, who's eight years my junior, he just, he's going to turn 42 in next month. And he was, people will ask us, you know, did the parents treat you differently? Yes, they did. They did. And if you ask the older brother why they treat you differently, I'm going to go, because he was the baby, right? So I got all the law, he got all the grace. That's probably not entirely true, but I'm still a little bit raw from some incidents, right, when we were younger. And, and so and if you ask him, he will say, well, it's because I behaved myself. And Joel didn't, which is partially true, right? And, and he will tell you, you know, I just, I watched Joel, I mean, I, I, he got punished, sometimes severely, and then he'd do it again. And I thought, why don't you just do what they say, right? All of us kind of have that sense, right? Like, like, why not just so you look at the, you're like, this is insane. Why would a human do this? Well, the answer, of course, is idolatry. That's the answer. And, and it's funny that not only here, but in every other part of Scripture, you know what God's preferred metaphor is for idolatry? It's adultery. It's adultery. And, and if you've ever been in a marriage where your spouse cheated on you, you feel and understand that probably better than anybody else, don't you? Because you understand. It makes total sense to me, Pastor, why that would be God's preferred metaphor, because it tells us that God takes idolatry very personally. And idolatry, like adultery, is insane, isn't it? It's just insane. All right, the number of times I've had to sit with someone and I, and I want to be compassionate. Listen, we all have moments of insanity. Doesn't mean we. We all commit adultery, but, but we're, we all have those moments when we're not thinking. And so you want to have compassion in, in the office and in the counseling room with that individual. But, but so many times where adulteries happen and the families invited me in to try to help, maybe to try to put that marriage together, or if it's going to fall apart to figure out how are we going to do what's in the best interest of the children, how, how are we going to make this work? And, and most often I'll sit with the offender, right, with, with the actual adulterer. And what I want to say, but don't often say, because I, I realize, is, is what were you thinking? Like, you, you had a spouse that loved you. You had kids that adored you. You have lost their trust. You may never get it back. You're probably about to lose a lot more because there's court, court dates coming. You may have forever lost respect of your children that you're never going to get back again. Why would you trade all of that for just a few minutes of physical pleasure? And we all kind of know the answer, right? They weren't thinking, were they? No person in the history of humanity has ever committed adultery as a result of using too much of their brain. That just never happened. So we know they weren't thinking, but what was going on? Well, you, you allowed yourself to be sucked into something that was very seductive until you fell. That's what happened. So with that experience in mind, look at John 17, because John is telling an entire church through this vision, it may seem crazy, 
But there's a reason people suppress the truth. There's a reason they double down, and there's a reason that they blame God, and there's a reason that they follow that path all the way to their own destruction. And today, we're going to see with graphic clarity the forces that will bring them there. And so there are two distinct parts of this chapter. There's the vision itself. We're going to look at that, verses 1 to 6. And then verses 7 to 18 are the angelic interpretation of this vision. The angel says to John, let me tell you what this means. So I want to take these in turn, and then we're going to make some applications. So let's start with the vision, and let's actually start with verse 3. He carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. And so in this vision, John's taken into the wilderness, and when he gets there, he sees something that he's seen before, but he sees something else he hasn't seen before. The thing he's seen before is the beast. This is the same figure he encountered in chapter 13. So it's the beast from the sea. And that beast, as before, is covered in blasphemous names. Now, blasphemy, strictly defined, is just sacrilegious speech. It's speech that is offensive or profane toward God or toward anything that might be considered sacred. But blasphemy also extends out from what merely comes out of the mouth to, to how you use your body, how you use your hand, your actions, your day-to-day -day actions. All right, and all of this ties back in as well to the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, when you get to the third commandment, you read, this, you, you read this passage. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, growing up in the South, you know what I learned about that? It meant don't cuss. And then I hit my thumb with a hammer once. Just being honest. All right? I, that's what I learned, though. It's about, it's about what the language. Right? Listen, I, what I'm about to say is not an excuse for a potty mouth. You, you come in here, you're, some of you are brand new babies in Jesus, you're barely dry from your baptism, and we love you, and the F-bomb's coming out of your mouth still every other sentence, and we love you. But part of the sanctification process is learning more words, right? So, so I, that's just part of the process. We love you, we're going to be here for you, we're going to walk with you. Um, and so I'm not saying that it's right to use those words, I am saying that's not what the third commandment means, and we know that because of what the first two tell us. Commandment number one is, don't have any other gods before me. Commandment number two is, don't make yourself an idol. And so the third one connects to the first two in this way. Don't speak about me and don't act as my representative in a way that makes me look like one of the idols that I forbid. That's what it means to break the third commandment. And you see repetitive breaking of the third commandment here on this beast, and on top of this beast, John now sees this new figure. It's a woman identified as the great prostitute, literally just someone who fornicates and commits adultery. She's mounted on the beast. The beast and she together are on top of many waters, which is symbolic of all the people, groups, and nations over which modern Babylon rules. And so this represents all of the earthly power and authority. And then we're told the kings of the earth, those who hold seats of authority at the time, in the first century, have been sexually immoral with her and with the wine of sexual immorality. Now, here's what's happened. There's been a twist on God's good gifts. God gives us good gifts. As a ministry colleague of mine said years ago, and I've never forgotten this because it was funny, but it was also true. Wine is a good gift from a gracious God. Sex is a good gift from a gracious God. Wine and sex together is an incredible gift from a gracious God, okay? But when you take a substance or a body that God has created and given to you and you abuse it, in other words, you take it outside his good intent 
The result is no longer wine and sex. The result is now drunkenness and fornication, drunkenness and adultery. And in that moment, you're no longer worshiping God by your use of those things and your pleasure in them. You are worshiping the thing in and of itself. And that's what we see here. Behind the spiritual curtain, there's a prostitute that has diluted the earthly powers with her wine, seduced them with her body, and coerced them even against their enemies. In verse 6 we read, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So that's the graphic vision. The question is, what, is, what does it all mean? Well, let's talk about the interpretation. Verse 7 says, But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carry certain. Now, if you're like me and you're reading and you see this graphic picture and it shocks you and you're like, i got to know what this means, and then you go to the next verse and you see an angel saying, I'm about to, to explain everything to you. I'm ready. Are you? Like, I'm like, feed me. Let's go. All right? So li listen to this. It won't be on the screen. I just want you to listen to it. Okay? Verse 8. The beast you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast, because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, and the, the other is not yet to come. And, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are the ten kings that have not received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. So does that clear everything up? Yeah, if you're like me, you're just like, I, I was better off just by stopping at verse 7. Like, I'm more confused than I was before. And that's the reason why there's been so much debate around this, this picture and what it means. Okay? So out of fairness to all four schemes, let's talk for a moment about interpreting the interpretation. All right? And you just need to know that if you want to dive deep down the rabbit hole... There's a book out here by Steve Gregg called Four Views. It's a commentary on Revelation. It lays everything out in a very unbiased manner. It's one of the resources that I've used to put this together. Uh, and you can find much more detailed descriptions than I have time to give you this morning. But I do, for a brief moment, want to give you a picture as to how the church historically, with great diversity, has tried to make sense out of all this. Okay? So let's start with preterism. So if you've been with us in this series, you've heard some of these terms before. A preterist is someone who believes that pretty much everything in Revelation has already been fulfilled and was fulfilled by the end of the first century. And so preterism would say the five fallen kings respond that they correspond to the five Roman emperors that had come and gone by the time of this letter. That would be Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, and Claudius. Preterists believe that Revelation was written, written in the mid-60s, which means that the current king being described here would be Nero. The seventh one, who remained only a little while, they identify as Titus. Makes sense. Titus only reigned for seven months. And the eighth would simply represent all the remaining emperors who would rule until the eventual end of the Roman Empire. All right? So that's pre-terrorism. Historicism, which, just a reminder, teaches us that Revelation represents successive periods of history up until the end. We'll say that all of this description is representative of the gradual move of the empire from pagan to Christian and culminating with the emperor Constantine. So it goes all the way to the fourth century. Futurism which confesses that 
pretty much everything after chapter 4, verse 1 hasn't happened yet. Futurists say that these refer to historical kings and empires. So this is Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece. And if you're trying to take notes, just stop trying, okay? Because I'll never get through this all in the time period allotted me. And so, but, but you can come back and listen to it. We're online. The podcast releases tomorrow. This is the whole reason we put that stuff out there. So you can go back if that's what you want. But those are the, the prior empires. The current earthly power is Rome, and the coming one is a future kingdom of Antichrist that we have not yet experienced. And then the final one is idealism. Now, idealism, just to make a long story short here, it's almost identical to the futurist, except they would say of that last kingdom, it's not representative of a singular kingdom, a singular Antichrist. It's instead representative of every earthly kingdom in which a Christian might find themselves until the end of the age. Now, a lot of diversity, right? Trying to get our heads wrapped around this, trying to get our arms around it. Let me give you the common theme, and it's twofold. Number one, every one of these advocates will tell you that for the first century church, the current kingdom being addressed is Rome. And that makes sense, given where this, the original recipients were located. And here's the big idea. They learned it in Rome. We learn it wherever we are, wherever God has placed us on the planet. The, the, the overwhelming big idea of this text is this. Every earthly power on the planet eventually is going to structurally decay it's going to morally decompose, and it's going to ethically self-destruct. Every single one. So your ultimate trust to the seven churches cannot be the Roman Republic. It can't. 2,000 years later, I love the red, white, and blue, but my ultimate trust cannot be there. And the reason this is true is because ultimately every kingdom, every earthly kingdom, every human authority overseeing that kingdom will become deluded with its own self-importance. It will become seduced by temptations of the whore and the beast. Remember what I said several weeks ago in that, in that message that I said, man, some of y'all are going to be mad at me. Human governments, political parties, any kind of institution that represents a civic authority or a body of civic solutions, a body of ideas, it does good. All of them do good up to a point. After that point, they serve the dragon. Every single one. And so that's the two beasts. That's the dragon. Back, back in that sermon that had to do with the mark of the beast. Well, this is yet another warning not to trust, as the prophets warned Israel, foreign princes. Look at Psalm 146.3. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth on that very day, his plans perish. They perish. It's not just that rulers die. Their ideas die eventually. Wherever we are on this timeline, wherever you are in that, in that fourfold scheme of interpretation, there are going to be earthly authorities that will seek to seduce you with power and prosperity and influence and pleasure and ease. And all they want in response is your unquestioned allegiance. That's all they want. But see, that's another way for, for, for believers that understand what the purpose of the church is in any age. That's another, we, we recognize that. That's, that's another way of saying all they want is for you to just check your prophetic voice at the door. Don't be a fly in the ointment. Don't, don't do those things. They just want your allegiance. John is saying to these first century churches, don't you give them that. Don't give it to them. Realize 
When that seduction comes, you're dealing with one, uh, one individual, one government, one power in a long line of earthly authorities whose influence will wane, whose kingdom will come to nothing. Then they're going to die. And when they die, not long afterwards, they're going to leave this earth and their whole agenda is going to disappear. That was an interesting thought to ponder. Uh, because I'm a, personally, I have for pretty much all of my adult life been both an admirer and a student of the leadership of Ronald Reagan. Now, you may hate the guy. You may have never voted for him. You, I'm, this isn't about whether or not you agree with your pastor. You don't have to agree with your pastor. I love you regardless. Just telling you, I've been an admirer. I've been a student. And, and here's one of the things I've learned. During the eight years that he was president of the United States, from 1981 to 1989, think about it for a minute. Four years ago, four years before that, two years from now, what, what, what's going to be one of the attractions? Judges, right? Judges matter. Well, they do. That's true. That's not untrue. But, but here's what I've learned. 1981 to 1989, guys, that was like a moment ago in time. Y'all realize how, how not far back that was? Yeah. I know in some ways you're like, wait a minute, that was more than 40 years ago. Yeah, shut up. We, we're all going to deny that we're really that old, right? But, but it, it really, it was a moment ago in time. 81 to 89, that man appointed four Supreme Court justices. Sandra Day O'Connor, William Rehnquist, Anthony Kennedy, Antonin Scalia. None of them are sitting on the bench right now. And three of the four are dead. They're gone. Reagan's legacy, like a sandcastle on the beach, like in the judiciary at least, it's just gone. Like it's not even there anymore. I'm not saying that, that, that I like that, that that's good. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just telling you, it's a fact. It is a fact of history that God who wrote history will use history to wipe out every other leader because he was not going to share his glory with any of them. He's not going to do it. Even if there's somebody I admire, somebody that I look up to, their influence will wane. And, and through this graphic kind of borderline offensive description, John is warning these churches in all of the ways in which our enemy will seek to draw us away. So let me give you five warnings here. Warning number one, the world is seductive. It will attract you. Look at verse five. On her forehead, was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Our enemy seductive. Paul, Paul warned Timothy about this. He said, in the last days, uh, people will not endure sound teaching. That word for sound is the word we get our word hygiene from it. It means healthy. It means it's good for you, right? It's like when you're a kid. You don't always want to eat your greens. To this day, I still think green peas are nasty, Right? but I should probably eat a few more of them. They're probably good for me. You're not going to want that. You're going to want the candy. You're going to want the liquor. You're going you're to seek for yourselves, teachers, because, and here's the metaphor, your ears are going to itch and you need somebody to scratch them. Our enemy loves to tell you what you want to hear. He loves to tell me, it's all right to sleep around. No big deal. It's okay to hate your neighbor. The real problem is not you, it's somebody else. This is the seduction of power influence. And I'm going to tell you, if you thought sex was tempting, this makes the temptation of sex look like nothing. We talk rightfully about temptations around the abuse and misuse of God's gift of sex. We don't talk so much about power. 
And that's what we see here. I mean, it is so seductive and enticing, so much so that all the kings of the earth eventually crawl into bed with this woman, drunken and deluded by the worldly power that she uses to intoxicate them. Here's the warning. Beware any invitation to exchange truth for power. Number two, the world is not just seductive, it's murderous. Verse six, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the, book, the, the, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. This is precisely the, the situation, the environment that the early church found itself in. Compromise your faith, give in to the pleasures of immorality and greed, the pursuit of power, and if you don't, we're going to kill you. We, we see, that, but that's not the first time that's been a test for God's people, has it? I mean, you, if you go back to Genesis 37 and just read all the way through the end of the book and you read the narrative of, of a young man named Joseph, you, you can see that temptation in his life. I can, I can enjoy the pleasure of another man's wife. She wants me. And nobody would ever have to know. But then I would know and, and God would know. And, and so now he's in this dilemma. If I give in, I get her, and then I get to keep everything I've got. If I refuse, who knows what's going to happen? And then later on, we find out what happens. She screams rape. She sets him up. He loses everything. He suffers. Everything in Joseph, Joseph's individual situation prefigures the choice that often comes for followers of Jesus. Either give up your faith for some pleasure or give up your life for your faith. And that moment is very likely to come for us. Very likely. Maybe not your, your physical life, but certainly your reputation. You could lose influence. You could be canceled. I mean, some Christians in the West whine about crap that's not even persecution. And I'm like, what are you going to do when the real stuff starts? Like, what's it? And then, even then, I mean, can I just be honest for a minute? Because, I, listen, I'm right there with you in terms of the, a fellow struggler who's tempted to whine. Don't believe me? Ask my wife. Okay. So I'm not, I'm not doing this with you. I'm just like, this, this, even if it's legit persecution, why would we whine? Jesus told us that's part of the deal. I can't believe they're taking my rights away. I can't believe there's any. What do you mean you can't believe it? Have you read the red letters? He told you this was going to happen. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. At some point, you're going to have to choose whether your faith is valuable enough to cost you something. And Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. The world is seductive. It is murderous when you don't give in to its seduction. Thirdly, it is resilient. Verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Two verses later, they are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. What's he saying? He's like, there's going to be this one, and then they're going to fall, and there's going to be this one, and then it's going to fall, and then there's going to be this one, and then it's going to fall. What's he saying? He's saying this temptation to power, this scratching of the itching ears, this, this accompanying decay of kingdoms and persecution of the saints and the, the rise of the blasphemous, this isn't just a one-time deal. This happens over and over and over and over throughout history, and then when it disappears for a while, eventually it pops back up. And, and the reason we're not attuned to it spiritually, unless we read our Bibles, is because our existence is like that, right? James tells us your life is a vapor. You're going to come, you're going to go. What if you live to be 100? Big deal. Against the span of all of human history, that's nothing. 
And so our limited experience requires that God's word allow us to illuminate that big picture so that we can be faithful. 1 John chapter 2 says this, children, it is the last hour and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. They're all over the place. And, and, it, you know, and, and again, it's not all bad. Some things are good up to a point, but after that they serve the dragon. I think about a, a friend of mine who works for the Sergeant-at-Arms of the United States Senate, took us on a tour once of the Capitol that was a little bit kind of off the main drag for the, um, the normal tourists, and, and it's one of the most beautiful views I've seen in my life, and I've been all over the world. And one of the most imposing views I've seen is standing on the balcony of the U.S. Capitol looking toward the Lincoln Memorial. It, it is breathtaking. And I, I don't know if you realize this, but in the history of that, there is intent both in the architecture and the layout of the National Mall. Did you know that? But you have three very distinct kinds of design, all right? Starting with the Washington Monument, which is Egyptian, then the Lincoln Memorial, which is Greek, and then the Capitol, where I was standing, which is Roman. Why would you mix and match all of that? Because by the mere architecture and design of the National Mall, we're making a claim as a civilization that we're standing on the shoulders of every great empire that ever came before us and in standing on their shoulders and in gleaning principles from each of those, we are going to build the greatest empire the world has ever seen. And we did it. We, we did it. And there are many wonderful things about it. It's not wrong that we did it. It's wrong to put all your hope in it. Okay. That's what we're being taught here. I told you last week, I love this country, especially when I come back from Asia and I haven't even had the pleasure of ice in 10 days. I love it. But the danger is thinking, we're going to be the exception to this rule. What happened to all those who came before? Don't put your trust in foreign princes because eventually God's word says, every earthly power that exists succumbs to the whore mounted on the beast. Your job is stay faithful to Jesus. It's not to pick a team. It's to stay faithful to Jesus because nations come and go. And listen, in the broader span of human history, it probably just bears repeating to remind us all that against the span of tens of thousands of years of human civilization, this nation, great and wonderful as it is, at just a little less than 250 250 years old, is still a teenager with a really bad case of acne. In the span of history, we lose sight of that, don't we? Because again, we're limited in time, we're limited in space, our life is a vapor, so we need God's Word to remind us of that broader canvas, don't we? Jesus is more than 250 years old. That's the comparison, right? This one fell, this one fell, this one fell. This one's not even into its third century yet. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's what John's saying to us here. Here's the fourth thing. The world is powerful. Look at verse 13. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. Now, what's that mean? Well, it's the symbolism of a prostitute that's added to this picture reminds us that seduction and power together are very hard to resist. 
that attraction and feel, that pull, they, they pull every bit as much in our day as our brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago did in theirs. We feel the power side of that when we're threatened with the consensus of a culture that has given itself to over, to, over to sin. You capitulate to this, you affirm this, you, you announce this, yeah, or we're going to do whatever. We're going we're gonna to cancel you, we're going to try to destroy your business, we're going to do anything, we're going to try to pass laws, those kinds of things. And we simultaneously feel the attraction to the pleasure, to the power, don't we? Time for you to come around with the rest of us. Come on, it's not so bad. You, you don't need to be so uptight. Good grief. Live with the rest of us. Be whoever you want to be. Sleep with whoever you want to sleep with. It's fine. Listen, all, that, all those rules about gender and marriage and say it's all socially constructed to begin with. It's just there to oppress you. You need to just throw that off. And by the way, the only, the only thing we're going to tell you, we're never going to punish you for this, we're never gonna, but we are going to require one thing of you while you enjoy this pleasure. Don't you say a blessed word about anybody else or the choices that they make, even if you're concerned about their soul, because that will earn you persecution. Listen, I, I know you guys are Christian. I know you want to follow Jesus. And he was real sweet and all when he was here. But all that, all that turn the other cheek stuff's gotten you nothing. This is politics we're talking about. If you want your country back, you're going to. See, I just gave you two very different sides that have the same demonic root. When you hear that kind of language, you in that moment, brother, sister, I love you. So I'm telling you that you need to see what John saw, a whore beckoning you into her bed, and you need to run because that's the, the picture here. Her pull is, is powerful, and you need to run for this reason. She's going to self-destruct. She's going to self-destruct. Verse 16, the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute, Whoa, wait a minute. I thought they were all working together. For a while, yeah. For a while. They will make her desolate and naked and devour. I told you this was graphic. Devour her flesh, burn her up with fire, for God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So what's he saying? All these evil partners that have cons conspired together to do eventually what's God, they're going to turn on each other. They're going to turn on each other. If you're a Star Wars fan, kind of like the Sith, right? A lot of deep involvement, a lot of it even seems really intimate. And then the next thing you know, right? One's missing a head. He's like, that's what's going to happen here. John's saying, this is how world powers work. All of them. The powers that work together to create every empire that ever existed are eventually going to turn on each other. And when you think about that description, it's no wonder adultery is the chosen metaphor here. Because, I mean, the, for the number of people that I've actually seen leave a spouse for, a, for somebody else. I mean, there's one that you, you blow it, you mess up, you give me a call, you're sitting in my office, you want to try to get it all back together, you want to try to get it fixed if you can. Most of all, you just want to repent and get right with God. We're walking with you through that. and we're, it, It's quite another thing when somebody leaves their spouse for somebody else and then you want me to officiate the freaking wedding? <laughs> yeah, come on in. I'll have that meeting with you. I'll be glad to take that meeting because I love you. 
you too are going to self-destruct. All this nonsense about, well, I just made him, I married the wrong person. Are you married? Yeah. Well, then they're the one. Apart from major, major, major stuff, all right, like abuse, infidelity, abandonment, there, there are certainly biblical reasons for divorce. Falling out of love is not one of those reasons, okay? But it, what happens, they, they leave them, and, and then, then there's new pictures on social media. I found my soulmate. You're not thinking too clearly, are you? Because that's the picture in John 17. There's a beast. There's a prostitute on top of the beast. They're in concert together. They're conspiring together. They're seducing everybody else into their bed. And then in the end, they turn on each other. Don't you know that's how it works? Don't you have the good comment? No, this isn't common. This is beyond. You're not using enough of your brain. This is why this happens. Because you forget anybody who will cheat with you will cheat on you. And that's what's happening here. But not with sex. With power. With power. This is happening. That, that adultery, oh, now I found my soulmate. Now, now I found my candidate. Now I found somebody I can put all of my hope in. Happening on the scale of world empires. That's the vision. Hans Lilia, who worked with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a German Lutheran, he speaks of the terrible, and he would know, having worked in the middle of the Third Reich in Nazi Germany, the terrible and mysterious law of political history according to which every revolutionary power contains within itself the seed of self-destruction. That's eventually going to happen to every kingdom that rises from now until Jesus comes back. And it's going to happen ultimately because God has put it into their hearts to do that. You know why? Because he doesn't share his glory with anybody. Look at Psalm 46.6. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. This is our God. And, and the bottom line message is, listen, facing persecution is always challenging. It never feels good. But there's a greater challenge here. It's not so much. You know, our biggest challenge is not so much persecution from the world as it is seduction by the world. And that's what John's telling us here. Just like the temptation to cheat on a spouse. Man, it can be tantalizing. And if you give in, it'll be pleasurable. Maybe even tangibly beneficial for a while. And the words of Jesus ring in the background. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? This is graphic. It is borderline offensive. It's not borderline. It just is offensive, isn't it? With an equally graphic challenge. You and I have two choices in this life from a spiritual standpoint. We can sleep with a whore or we can be part of the bride of Christ. You cannot do both. You can't have both because the kingdom is coming is singular. Look, look, let's just be reminded of what happened six chapters earlier. Chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. We just saw in chapter 17 how that takes place. He has put it in the seed of sinful humanity to be ultimately self 
self-destructive, which means no earthly power in this world will remain. It will all be his one day. Who would you rather serve? What are you right now giving in exchange for your soul? Let me tell you something. There's a God who demonstrated his love for you 2,000 years ago in the very thing that we just saw symbolized around the Lord's table. He came into this world and he did what you were incapable of doing and don't even want to do. Lived a perfect life. Exactly the kind of life that God requires. There's nothing you can do. You have to depend on the works of Jesus. His life is your and my only victory. You don't earn salvation. You don't earn salvation. Our friend Joel Kurz came yesterday and he was explaining this around the table to some of us and I just, it was just beautiful. He's like, if Jeffrey Dahmer told you he pulled community service with the Girl Scouts, would that mean he doesn't need to be executed now? Right? You don't, you're, you're a little bitty worthwhile, worthy, even altruistic deeds. Isaiah says they're like filthy rags in the sight of God. They're unacceptable to him. You don't get into heaven by what you do. But that same God who incarnated himself and lived that life on your behalf also died a death that you should have died as your substitute. He bore the wrath of God in your place. You don't have to live under the wrath of God unless you choose to. You don't have to live deluded by the world in the way we saw described unless you choose to. Come to Jesus this morning. And we want to give you an opportunity to do that. In just a moment, I want to ask our pastors and deacons to stand and to just get under one of these four crosses. And if you see a man or a woman with a lanyard, you run to them. We would love to share with you what it means to follow Jesus. If you're already walking with Christ, but you kind of feel as after a message like this, man, yeah, I've been feeling that tug toward this, toward that. It's attractive. You're right, pastor. It's seductive. Now is your time to come back and to be faithful. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for another message of love that does not hold back the truth, but that warns us of events to come. It warns us that the events to come have already come in the past, and so we can even learn from history how to be faithful to you. And Father, may we be faithful. Lord, may you, may you be our only treasure. May you be the prize that we go for. May you be the pearl that we sell everything for. Father, may, may your spirit lead others to do just that today, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.